If you have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you take it and open it up to Philippians chapter two. If you didn't bring one with you, you're gonna find them in the racks right there around you and you can follow along that way. If you don't own a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back and I'd love for you to pick one up on your way out this morning so that you have a copy of God's word in your hand. So a question for you while you're flipping over to Philippians chapter two and you can follow the verses along on the screen also if you don't know how to find Philippians. Um, are you having a problem this year getting into the Christmas spirit? Is, is that a familiar sense to you? Maybe it's a lack of snow. Um, you know, people many times will try to um, gin up emotion by watching a white Christmas or um, it's a wonderful life over and over again, try and, try and recapture those, those memories of uh, Christmas having a sense of awe and wonder. So my question is legit. Do you find yourself, raise your hand if you're having a hard time getting into the Christmas spirit this year, okay? About 30 of you are being honest, right? Okay, and I understand that. It, it, there's, a, there's a truth to the fact that when you have a little children around, it's a whole lot easier, right? Because they bring so much energy. Grandparents love to have children come over to the house because the kids bring the energy at Christmas time. But as your kids grow older, if you, if you have grown children, um, it begins to diminish and you find yourself looking and wondering, how do I recapture that? So I have a goal this morning. My goal is to help you with your Christmas spirit. Now immediately, some people are having a recoil react to that, right? I had some individuals come to me after the Saturday night service and after the nine o'clock service who said, you know, when you said that, I'm like, oh, I don't wanna be helped with my Christmas spirit. I'm really content being this way. Well, here's my reason. I wanna help you appreciate the magnitude of the gift that was given to us. When a gift is given to us, we commonly would say a gift that's given to us is generally from somebody who's really passionate about us, who loves us immensely. Now, I know occasionally you give gifts to people you'd rather not give gifts to, too, right? Occasionally we have to do that, just kind of out of a sense of obligation. There's individuals we have to give to. But when we give the super good gifts, the kind we really want to give, it's because we're passionate about that person. It's because we have deep love for that person, a genuine love. So here's my premise. Our understanding of the magnitude of the gift that God gave us really begins with understanding how much he loves us. And Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus saying, that's a really hard thing to understand. Matter of fact, he was praying that they would understand how much God loves them. Let me show you this on the screen. You'll see Ephesians 3.17, it says this, that you, speaking to the church, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, not, not just the church at Ephesus, all those who are believers in Jesus, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So Paul's take is, it's important, it's really, really important. It's really important that you comprehend the magnitude of what God has done for you even though you can't comprehend it. Thanks a lot, Paul. That's what he's saying. I want you to know this even though you can't know it, and I'm gonna be the first to admit, it is difficult to comprehend the magnitude of what God has done for us. So in order for you and I this morning to grasp it, to really grasp it, 
we have to recognize it's a work of God. So I purposely didn't pray to start out this teaching because I wanted to pray with you now that we would all be on the same page. I want to pray together, I will pray for us, that God would help us to understand the magnitude of Jesus' love for us. Would you do that with me? Let's, let's pray together. Father, we recognize that we come into something that is beyond human capacity to understand what Jesus has given us surpasses knowledge. You've said it yourself. It's incomprehensible. But yet you've given us a written record. So our desire is to look at this written record to really understand what you have offered us as best we can. So I pray for your saints. Even though we may not see ourselves that way, you do. You've called us the righteous, the redeemed, your children. So Father, for those who name the name of Jesus in this auditorium right now, you consider them saints. God, give them eyes to see and ears to hear to really understand this. For those who are yet not in relationship with Jesus, Father, I pray in a supernatural way that your Holy Spirit will reveal truth to them, that it would go beyond human description, that there would be a, a genuine encounter with you this morning. Father, I ask for that in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want you to understand the magnitude of what we're about to deal with. In the last two services, 15 people have prayed to receive Christ here at New Hope, okay? Yeah, I know, that's a big reason to applaud, right? Okay, very cool. The weight of what we're about to look at is of that magnitude, that God encounters people who don't yet know him, and they come to a realization by looking at his word, not because of a man, but because the Holy Spirit is revealing truth. So here's where I start. Christmas, as we understand it, from Earth's point of view, God rips open the night sky, and an announcement is made that's never been made like any announcement on planet Earth. A micro-moment explosion of light covers the plains, and some shepherds are scared to death because the dark blanket of night rolls back like a scroll and angels appear and there's a symphony of voices unlike anything ever heard before or since. No one has had a birth announcement like this, the greatest pronouncement in world history. The one who is greater than death has entered the planet. Who's ever heard of something like that? That's God's announcement. And it's found in Philippians 2, how this all happened. We get a view behind the curtain. It says this in Philippians 2, verse 5, Christ Jesus, verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So God the Son enters planet Earth taking the physical form of Jesus the man. Scripture backs that up in other places. It says in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Those of you who know your Bible know that that's incomplete. I've left something out. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Paul's emphasis here is it's a trustworthy statement. You can take it to the bank 
Christ Jesus came into the world. Now, if you've been in church very long, maybe you grew up in church, you may have started out in diapers in church. The frequency with which that is mentioned causes you and I to hear it without emotion. So we can find ourselves coming into the Christmas season saying, I'm not really sure I'm into Christmas this year. I'm not sure I have the same emotion behind it. And so when we hear the birth announcement described in that way, we can hear it without emotion. I'm telling you, the more I ponder Philippians chapter two, the more it leaves me with sheer awe. So over the last number of years, I've had to make a personal study of Philippians chapter two during this season. And I've kept it to myself. I've, I've never taught it around Christmas time, even though this is the birth announcement. So I'm sharing with you something I've kept very personally for myself up until now. John 1.14 starts us out by saying, and the word became flesh. God put on skin and bones and dwelt among us. So stop and let that sink in. God became Jesus, and that may be a new thought for some of you. Maybe you thought Jesus started in Bethlehem. God the Son became Jesus. Just kind of ease into that. And bear with me. I know some of you know this. We touched on it just four weeks ago. But I want to help you. I want to help you with your Christmas spirit. We're going to grasp the love of God, the width, the breadth, the depth, the height. So let's watch Jesus step through the sphere of time by understanding the condescension of God. And I used that phrase last week, and it, it kind of bothered some people. Some individuals came to me and said, I, I don't like that phrase, condescension. It's as though God's just talking down to us because we associate the term condescension with somebody who looks down their long nose and, and looks at us as less than. Get that thought out of your mind completely. That's not what condescension means in this case. If you get the right framework of thinking around this, it will change your view of Christmas. So hear this. All of God's interactions with his created beings is a condescension, and it's absolutely essential that you and I understand this. God humbles himself even to look on the things of heaven. If you pulled your notes out of your bulletin this morning, you might want to write down this verse, or maybe write it in your own Bible. Psalm 113.5, it says this. King David wrote, God humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth meaning the distance between him and the highest of the angels, Gabriel and Michael included, the distance between him and the highest of the angels is absolutely immeasurable because he's God. All things are infinitely below him. He is infinitely above all things. So hear this, all contact is of the greater with the lesser meaning for God to have interaction with fallen man is a condescension beyond our imagination. We can't begin to comprehend it. When I mentioned that four weeks ago, some individuals came to me after the service and said, I, I feel like a worm when you say things like that. Well, I, I get that, but if, if that's your framework of thinking, you're gonna begin to see it just the opposite that God did this for a reason. Because he's supreme, he has to condescend to come to our level. 
And when he does that, he does that specifically for a reason. So if you're going to accept the fact that God humbled himself, it's very natural to say, well, what's going on behind the curtain? I want to understand that. What are you talking about? In God's plan, he calls this the consummation of the ages. The book of Hebrews speaks to this. You see it on the screen, Hebrews 9, 26. At the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested so as the ancient story goes, we understand from our view on earth, first one angel appears in this explosion of light with this announcement, and Luke 2.9 says this, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, and if that isn't enough, a multitude, Scripture says. If you have your notes in your hands this morning, you see the very first Greek word, it's this word plethos. It's where we get the English word plethora from. Plethos means a bundle, right? There's just so many angels, they can't even be counted. And so we're told in Luke 2.13, suddenly there appeared with the angel, the singular angel, then a multitude of the heavenly host. So you've got this major choir, right? Glowing beings filling the dark night sky, giving a command performance for an audience of shepherds who are scared to death. And for those shepherds, it's not just the angels that terrify them. But if you want to hear more of that, you've got to come back Christmas Eve, right? Okay, that's just a plug. There's, there's more going on than just the angels that are scaring them. So for this moment and time to unfold, there had to be a prior action. There had to be something else going on behind the scenes. Scripture says it was before the foundation of the world. You see this on the screen? Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That, that means the plan was in place before the earth existed. The giant wheels of God's amazing grace were turning before he called any nebula into existence, before any stars were formed. Do you know what that means for you? It means before you were born, God loved you. Let that settle. Before you were born, God loved you. And I'm not talking about reincarnation, church. I'm not talking about the fact that you lived a previous life. I'm talking about the fact that he's omniscient. He's God. He knew you would exist. Before you existed, God loved you. So if we get that framework of understanding, we begin to understand the condescension of God before you were born, God loved you. Merry Christmas, church. That's the beginning of God's gift, understanding that. So if you wanna grasp the love of Christ, you gotta see what he did. And we get to watch the descension of God in Philippians chapter two. You wanna grasp the love, the height, the depth, the breadth? Look at Philippians two with me. You can actually track his descent. It says this in Philippians two, verse six. Although he existed in the form of God, and we stop right there because that's the very first step. He existed as God. That makes him completely different than every other God, small g, that anybody else on earth claims. Different than Muhammad, different than Buddha, different than anything that's celebrated in Hinduism. We're told specifically he existed in the form of God. It's the word huparko in the Greek language. If you look in your notes, you'll see six Greek words this morning. We haven't done six Greek words in New Hope in a long time, but just hold on, all right? So this word huparko means the continuance of a previous state. 
all right? So when it says existed, it's talking about he existed before that way and he continues that way. That's why Micah 5.2 can make this statement. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, written 400 years before Jesus was born. Micah said his goings forth are from eternity past. He's existed, huparko. So by his very nature, Jesus is eternally God. The essence of his nature that is absolutely unalterable, completely fixed. That's why John could write in 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. Those are huge statements, church. Jesus pre-existed. Jesus has been eternally existent. Verse six says, in the form of God. Form is another Greek word for you this morning. It's the word morphe. We use the word morph in the English language. Morphe is the root of that. An outward manifestation of an inner reality. It's very easy for us to understand that one because morphe of any human being is humanity. When Mark Kring was born on March 28th, 19 something, (laughs) born as a baby boy who became a young boy, who became an adolescent, a young man, a middle-aged man, and someday will become an old man. The common thread through that is humanity. The morphe of any human is our humanity. It's the essential form that never alters. So before Bethlehem, before the silent night, Jesus preexisted as God, equal with God in every way. Surrendering that privilege, surrendering that position is what set the incarnation in motion. So verse six takes it a step further. It says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this is our second stop, the, the word equality. He had equality. If if you're a math student, you're very familiar with the isosceles triangle. This is the root word, isos. This word means two exact equivalents. Not one is a copy of the other, but the exact equivalence. That's what an isosceles triangle is, two exact sides, right? So this means Jesus had equality with God, exactly the same as God, but he didn't regard that equality something to, be hang, to hold on to. Although fully God, he refuses to hold on to his rights. That's a really, really critical distinction. It's not as though he earned those rights. He already had those, meaning Jesus already possesses equality. He did not earn it as some people teach that he was born a child and he behaved so well and did such good things on earth that God really, really liked him, so he earned a privileged position. That is not the teaching of the Bible. That is not the teaching of the Bible that you hold in your hand. Jesus never denies his equality with the Father. As a matter of fact, when he came around on planet earth and started saying the Father and I are one, people wanted to kill him. Look with me on the screen at John, John 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one, Jesus' own quote. What did the Jews do in response? They picked up stones, and not to throw them at blue jays, right? To kill Jesus. They understood exactly what he was saying. There's no confusion there. So Philippians 2, verse 7 takes us one step further down. The third step is he emptied himself. 
says very, very clearly, he emptied himself. What does that mean? That means he's refusing to keep the privileges of his position. Next Greek word that's used there, kineo. It, it, it has this meaning behind it to neutralize something. The ancient theologians would say it's almost as though God put a veil over himself to, to cover his attributes, meaning he refuses to assert any of his divine rights. So the one who created everything, according to God's word, everything was spoken into existence through the word, meaning Jesus. The one who created everything surrenders everything. And notice this, this is very important to note if you're keeping notes this morning. He emptied himself only of his privilege of his deity, not of deity itself. If he had emptied himself of his deity and ceased to be God, he couldn't have died for our sins. He did not stop being God. He surrendered the privileges of his deity. So what does that mean, he emptied himself? What does that look like? Well, in your notes this morning, I gave you four bullet points, but you'll see them on the screen as well. Here's just four of them. I know there's others, but these are big ones that really jump out to me. First of all, this helps me with my Christmas spirit because I understand he gave up his heavenly glory. He surrendered the worship of the angels and the saints in heaven. Now, you guys sing great, right? But I gotta tell you, you're not a choir of angels, right? We would love to be. We sing like we would like to be. But when angels sing, it, it scares people. You know, you see the story of the shepherds. The angels are so powerful in their voice. Jesus gave that up. And the worship of the saints in heaven. So that's why you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's arrested. He's saying to the Father, God, would you restore to me now the glory that I had with you previously? Look at that verse. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's why he's making those big statements. I had the glory. I gave up the glory. Now I want to be restored because I've done everything that you've asked me to do. They're coming to arrest me, and I'm about to die on the cross. That's the first one. Here's the next one. He gave up as independent authority. Understand within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is perfect agreement. There's, there's no confusion. They operate in complete unity. That's why Jesus prayed that the church would be one as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. Complete unity. So he gave up this opportunity to be in perfect harmony with them when he surrendered and submitted to God's will. So that's why you find him saying in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Total submission. God the Son, equal with God the Father in every way, now on planet Earth as Jesus the man, completely surrendering his independent authority. Here's the next one. He gave up his eternal riches, and this doesn't even need comment. Just read the verse. 2 Corinthians 8, for your sake he became poor so that I might become rich, you also. He became the poorest of the poor so that you and I might become rich. And here's the fourth one. This one just boggles my mind. This really helps me with my Christmas spirit. He gave up face-to-face -face relationship with the Heavenly Father. 
We're, we're told according to scripture that God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf. That, that, that's said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So when Jesus is on the cross and he's never been separated from the Father before and he screams out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God. The separation between God the Father and God the Son because God the Son is covered with sin in that moment. He's not known that. And then he gives up the face-to-face relationship with the heavenly Father and then goes one step further on the cross and the separation because of our sin. Those are four things. There's more that he emptied himself on. But we need to move forward into verse 7. It says in Philippians 2.7, from that step, he goes to the fourth step. He's taking on the form of a bondservant. So just stop right there. Form is the word morphe. It's the same one that we just used earlier. He uses it again here. The king became a slave. King of kings willingly becomes a bondservant. So Jesus' own words, look with me at Matthew 20. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you know that a bondservant owned absolutely nothing? Not even jewels. If they had a ring on their finger, it's because their master gave it to them. So they didn't own the clothes on their back. They didn't own boats. They didn't own land. They didn't own houses. A a bondservant didn't have an RV unit. There's no tent to even live in unless the master let him have it. So we're told that Jesus became a bondservant, meaning this. He had to borrow a donkey for his own coronation service to ride into Jerusalem. He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. The king of everything had absolutely nothing on planet Earth. We go one step further. He continues on down, Philippians 2, 7, and we're told next, the fifth step is he was made in the likeness of men. So when we're stepping on down to Christmas, we're saying he puts on humanity. We're talking about literally the incarnation. God puts on this stretchy stuff called skin. He's got bones, he's got muscle, he's got organs. So suddenly, the king of kings needs parents to feed him and change his diapers. That may set you back a little bit. He, he needs to be clothed. He needs to be protected from King Herod. The, the king of kings is worshipped by magi who come from the east, but when they come to worship him, they worship a child, a, a baby. And I'm sorry to mess up your Christmas cards, but there was no halo around his head, right? Okay, just so we're clear. I I know some people come to that thought, but no, there was no halo bouncing around every place he ran. That's something that artists put into the picture to try and help people identify who the Christ child was. So that's, that's a reality for us. So that means he's got all the frailties, all the limitations of the fall. So what you deal with every day, tiredness, Weakness, pain, he's known it all. Matter of fact, Scripture goes one step further. In the book of Hebrews, it says that he was tempted in all ways just like we are. Hebrews 4.15, he has been tempted in all things as we are. Yet, praise Jesus, without sin, right? Okay, never gave in to it. 
So let's go one step further. We come into the sixth step, and we're told in verse eight, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The word appearance is this word, the last Greek word for this morning, it's schema. It's literally the outward appearance, meaning everybody who saw him, they identified him as a man. So when Jesus began talking about being from heaven and the Father and I are one, it left people confused. Look, look with me on the screen, John 6, 42. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? It's absolutely amazing, right? The one who made solar systems is now making tables in the carpenter shop. He's dressing like a commoner. He washes the feet of the smelly disciples because they don't know enough to wash up before supper. Absolutely, it's breathtaking humility if Jesus did nothing more than just take on our humanity. But he goes one step further. He didn't stop there. Verse eight says he humbled himself. And when you see the word humbled, you may not be thinking of what I think you're thinking of. Let me clarify what I just said. This, this next step down, when we think humbled, we're, we're thinking someone who's living really, really, really poor. What this is talking about here is a transition. It's a transition from form, morphe, the form of man, into the attitude. It's a transition from the form to the attitude. And that comes out most clearly in the arrest and the trial and in the crucifixion. Mocked, slapped in the face, beard ripped out, people beating him with their fist, spitting on him. And what does Jesus never do? You're violating my human rights. No, he doesn't do that. You didn't give me a decent trial. Doesn't do that. It says he remained speechless. He didn't say a word. He didn't even insist on basic human rights, let alone the rights of the king of kings. So we see humility in a form that we can't begin to imagine. And we understand when he refuses to assert his rights, and they're ripping his beard out and punching him in the face, at that moment, we'd say if any time we ever wanted to see God hit the easy button, it would be then. Because we're told he could call 10,000 angels. But he doesn't. Because that would be totally contrary to God's plan. So he submits. So we come into the last step, the seventh step, and it says this in verse eight, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we stop there for the last step. He surrenders his life. Now, right now you might be thinking, come on Mark, it's Christmas, do we really have to talk about death? The truth is, church, without that component, you don't have a savior born for you. He can't be the savior if he didn't die. Otherwise he'd just be a baby in the manger. So without Philippians 2.8 saying not only death, death on a cross, we need to recognize God the Father did not force death on God the Son. Jesus clarified that for us. He said, nobody took my life. No one has taken it. He said it this way, John 10.18, no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. So catch this, Merry Christmas. Jesus chose death because of life, my life, your life. He chose death because of life. We very clearly see the explanation of that when we look at Romans 5, 19. 
Romans 5.19 says this, for as through the one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, meaning Jesus, the many will be made righteous. If you're in Philippians 2, you, you can close that and just hear me out on this now as we end this. These scriptures are the reality of Christmas. It helps me unwrap the gift because it's the very core of what we know to be truth. God the Son became Jesus the man. And don't be surprised by the mystery, right? Don't be surprised by it, but don't throw it away because of the mystery. This may be the first time you've heard this before. This may be completely new and you're mystified by it. The Bible accepts that this is mysterious. God doesn't give us any more information than what I've just explained to you. If you want to measure the immeasurable, like how big is the love of Christ? What is the breadth? What is the depth? What is the length? What is the height? You have to look at these passages and you're left saying, this would be absolutely crazy if God himself had not been the one to declare it. So this is how big I understand it is. It is wide enough to embrace the entire planet, every single human being. It doesn't matter their background or their past. Every single person has this available to them. They can receive it. That's how wide it is. How long is it? It's long enough to stretch from eternity down to earth because God's not limited by that span. And here is the heart of the Bible. We stopped with 1 Timothy just a few minutes ago. 1 Timothy 1.15, I told you it was blank. I don't know if you know what the words are to fill in that blank. Scripture says this, it is a trustworthy statement. It's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world for a specific reason. And this is where you see how deep is the love of Christ. Finish the verse out. It is a trustworthy statement that he came into the world to save sinners. So the love of God is so deep, it can reach down and snatch me from the grip of Satan, from death itself. And it is high enough that when it snatches me from the depths of hell, it can raise me to heaven. You wanna know how wide and how long and how deep and how high is the love of Christ? That's how scripture describes it. So church, hear this. It is a trustworthy statement. Jesus came to make us an object of his mercy. And you can receive it today. You can receive what he offered. God is so interested in you. God is so interested in a relationship with you. He didn't just send information. He sent himself. You catch that? He didn't just send details, this is what you need to do. He sent himself, so do you sense that you need to do business with God today? First of all, hear this, he's God. All things are possible with him. There is nothing that he is limited by. So everything that you just heard, you can believe all that he has done. It's your decision though. It's completely yours. Have you believed? It's the most important decision you'll ever make, and accepting it is completely optional. I promise you, there's no one waiting in the parking lot to tackle you this morning. 
right? We don't do things like that here. It's completely up to you. You can receive what God is offering you right where you sit. And if you're expecting God to do something more or to tell you to do one more thing before you can be saved, hear this. He's done it all. Amen, church? Okay, he's done every bit of it. He's done everything. What he's telling you to do is to believe. God loves you, and he wants you to spend eternity with him. This is the point where some people say, you know what? You have no idea of my past, Mark. You don't know the things that I've done. It's not about your past, church. It's about your future. It's not about what you've done. It's about what he did. It's not about your past. It's about your future. You want your sins wiped away? You receive the love of God, what he has offered you. So I'm gonna ask for the entire church just close your eyes and bow your head right now, and I'm gonna talk you through how to receive this. I'm gonna ask you, if you want to, just to echo this back up to the Father, so I'm gonna invite you just to whisper it back to him. You, you can do it in the quietness of your seat, and you say things like this. Father, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he died for me, and that he was raised back to life. I'm asking him to be my Lord and my God. I admit to you right now that I am a sinner and that won't surprise him when you tell him that. Admit to him that you're a sinner and that you're willing to turn from your sin. That, that's the word repent. What I'm asking you to do is to invite him into your life. You receive him as your savior and as your Lord. And if you do that, you will receive his cleansing. So let me go through this with you. I don't want to skip this over. This is so important. If you want to receive Jesus, just say these words back to the Father. We'll do this one more time. Father, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he died for me and that he was raised back to life. I'm asking for Jesus to be my Lord and my God. I admit that I'm a sinner and I'm willing to repent of my sin and I'm inviting him into my life. Father, I want that cleansing. I want the new beginning. If you keep your eyes closed, I'd just like you to raise your hand if you just prayed that. Father, I know that you see these hands. It doesn't escape your attention. You heard every word that these individuals prayed back to you. So God, I ask that you would be in the midst of the conflict that takes place in moments like this. For individuals who want to surrender to you but find themselves thinking of their past, their mistakes, and their failures, remind them that they've just claimed Jesus in their life and that according to your word, they are a new creation. God, that you see them as righteous. Father, I pray for the strength of these individuals who have been willing to raise their hand, who have been willing to pray this prayer, that you would give them the best Christmas ever. God, that this would mean so much more to them after understanding this. 
that they have received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. They can stand before him one day completely clean. So God, I ask for every one of us now, every one of us in this auditorium who name the name of Christ, that you would infuse us with a new invigoration this week, that we would walk before a watching world who is confused and wondering why they don't have enough Christmas spirit. Father, let us be a living witness and a light to a world that is so hungry and living in darkness. Use new hope, Father. Use this church assembly. Make us a light to the world. Let us be a witness for the kingdom that people would look and be attracted to you. It's for your sake and for your glory and for your honor and for the name of the king who gave up everything for us. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. And all God's people said, amen. amen. If you're one of those who raised your hand and confessed Jesus this morning, I'm here to tell you, you are not only a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. Congratulations. Well done. Only God can do what just happened here, right? It's the work of God, not the work of man. So if, if you are looking for that new beginning, if that's something that you claimed this morning, Gary put some books on the back table. They're free for you. They're called New Beginnings. You can pick one up when you leave it. It'll help you decide, what do I do next now that I've confessed Christ? What does this mean? They're on the back table. Just work your way back there and grab one. In the meantime, have a really happy Christmas this week, all right? Have a great week, New Hope.